Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Hey, Becca. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm sitting here with a cider. You have one as well. In your fort. In my fort. It's <laughs> definitely warmer when you're consuming cider under a blanket than usual. Really? I think that would make it refreshing. <laughs> no, I just, I feel like my cheeks are a bit flushed because oh, of it. Oh, fair. Mm-hmm. Fair. You look great. You look super cozy. You look like you're hydrating in a way that makes you happy. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, we're coming to you in the midst of a scandal, though. Mm -hmm. Big, big scandal. Or is it? Or is it? That's a great question. What am I talking about? We're talking about Buttergate. Buttergate. I love the name Buttergate. Yes, definitely. Um, Do you want to give us like a gist of, of what Buttergate is? Okay, so I actually don't know too much about Buttergate, just what I've seen kind of through headlines on Twitter, whatever. But people started noticing that their butter was harder than usual. It was harder to spread on toast, even at room temperature, which have you noticed that? I personally have not, but I also keep my butter in the fridge. So I feel like I wouldn't notice. Your butter's always rock hard. Yeah. 
I think I have noticed. I thought I was just getting old and kind of crotchety, but no. It just wasn't spreading as easy. Yeah. And it wasn't like if I took out a a stick and I was going to bake, it wasn't softening as quickly. Okay. Yeah, I didn't notice. So this definitely felt very scandalous. I was taken aback by it. But when looking into it, it doesn't actually seem as scandalous as the news headlines are making it seem, which is such a common theme. Totally. Yeah, from the headlines, you'd think like they were injecting butter with palm oil and it was like actually in the butter. But Mm -hmm. they're actually allegedly, 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 (laughs) I really want to make that clear. They're saying that they have not made changes to butter production. And when I say they, I mean Canada's Dairy Processors Association. The allegations are that palm oil has been added to cattle feed. And Mm -hmm. so it's changing the fatty acid composition of the butter. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially creating a butter that has some palm oil characteristics to it. Adding palm feed or what is it? Palm fat into dairy cow feed is technically legal. And it's been done for many, many years. So nothing too scandalous. Totally. Yeah, I guess like that's all we really know for now. Yeah, we'll keep you updated. We'll watch the news for you and then report back on extra cheese. Definitely. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, today's episode is so exciting because it's mm-hmm. about one of my favorite food products of all time. We're going to cover the history of maple syrup and the great Canadian maple syrup heist. Yes. It is such a great topic. Maple syrup is also one of my favorite foods, one of my favorite condiments. I think I mentioned this in our last episode, so I'm going to keep it brief. But I'm going to tell you (laughs) just a lot about Canada's maple syrup specifically, but also the global, global maple syrup production. I mean, most of it's Canada. Most of it is. And do you know what this amount is percentage wise? Take a stab at it. 80%. Okay, so it used to be 80%, and now it's oh, no. 71%. So it has gone down a little bit, which 
is actually because the U.S. started producing a little bit more. But Canada still does produce the majority, so 71%, which means that even if you aren't Canadian, but you have tried maple syrup at some point, there is a very good chance that it did come from Canada. And of that that 71%, 91% of that comes from Quebec. So they're obviously a massive producer. Other Canadian regions for production include Ontario, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. It's also produced in Vermont, New York, Maine, Wisconsin, and a couple other states, but generally all states or provinces with chillier climates, which makes up what's called the Maple Belt. So harvesting maple syrup was traditionally a process practiced by Canadian Indigenous communities. So some historic documentation from Iroquois communities describes the process of collecting sweet water from trees. It's often used to, or sorry, it was often used to cook venison at that specific time, which is where the whole concept of maple cured meats originated. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that sounds delicious. Doesn't it? And this became like more and more of a common preservation process that allowed for meats to last into the winter months. So the Anishinaabe people have this tradition called sugaring off, which is when the sap is collected from the maple trees during what's called the maple moon or sugar month. And this is the the syrup season, which typically lasts from March till about April each year. So the earliest references of maple syrup made by European settlers in Canada was in 1557. And it's something that was appropriated and commercialized by settlers, unfortunately, which, of course, is a dark side of our history that is not talked enough about. So during this time, land and resources were stolen, areas were deforested, and Indigenous people were forced out of their communities. So harvesting maple syrup is like a long-standing tradition that has been taking place way before Canada was even called Canada. So I just feel like Mm -hmm. that's really important to know. That's definitely important to know. So maple syrup was actually the first type of sugar that was ever produced in eastern North America, and it really had most of the market until 1875 when sugarcane was introduced within like the fur trade. Interesting. So it took some time, yeah. All right, so now a little bit on the production of maple syrup. So starch actually accumulates in sugar maple trees throughout the year. And this starch is converted into the clear sugary sap in the springtime when the snow melts and it produces like an abundance of water for the tree roots to absorb. Cool. So sap is harvested when the days are over zero degrees, but when the nights are still below freezing, which is why March and April are like the ideal times. And this is because of a positive pressure that's created in the tree trunk during those warmer daytime temperatures. And then this causes like the sap to kind of flow out if the tree is tapped. So there's like a pressure kind of pushing out and it's just like a, just a system, like a pressure system. That is so cool. Isn't it? Can you imagine being the first person to like taste it? Just walking around and seeing a tree probably leaking. So what I actually, and I didn't include this in my script here, but it's just one of the theories, I think. It was just more so that... um, the first person that discovered this thought it was water. And so they ended up using it to cook their food in and it turned out to be really sweet. So I don't know if that's like 100% true, but I feel like it makes sense. I like to believe that. (laughs) I'll believe in that. (laughs) What a happy accident. Yes, I know. What would we do without it? (laughs) Okay, so before the sap is converted to syrup, 
It consists of about 97% water and 2 to 5% sugar, so it isn't very concentrated at first. And to collect the sap for commercial use, there will often be like a network of tubes going from tree to tree that funnel into like these large collection containers. And after the tree is tapped and the sap is extracted, the sap goes to what's called the sugar shack, where it's boiled down and condensed into like a sweet syrup, which becomes that darker hue that we're familiar with. And it's actually often called pure liquid gold because of that golden color. Oh, awesome. Did you ever go to a sugar shack? <laughs> I did. I actually, yes, I did. Um, did you? Yeah. When I was yeah. a kid, it was the best. It was. It was so fun. You got to watch somebody tap a tree and then just like check out the sugar shack. And eat pancakes. Which is such a great name. I didn't have, I don't think I had pancakes. Oh, I was actually wondering though, have you tried maple taffy? In the snow? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've tried that. I didn't know it was that called taffy. Is, the best. It's so good. So yeah, essentially you're boiling down the maple syrup and pouring it on the snow. And so it becomes like a candy-like texture. I'm not explaining it to you because you've had it. I'm saying it just generally for the listeners. For the listeners. Clean snow. Clean snow that has not been <laughs> stepped on or urinated on. Dog pee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I meant dog pee. <laughs> yeah. And it's just really like a really delicious candy. It's so good. Yes. Have you tried maple water? No. They were handing it out at a festival I went to years ago, and I don't know if it caught on because I haven't really seen it since, mm -hmm. but I think it's the maple water before it's turned into syrup, like harvested from the tree. So it's a really faint taste of maple syrup, but people would use it to hydrate during activities like in place of Gatorade. Oh, it has electrolytes and some sugars. Interesting. So yeah, it's like the sap versus the syrup. Yeah, it's very faintly sweet and faintly tastes like maple, but it's certainly not syrupy. It's more like a water. I'm going to Google that later just to see if it still exists because I would definitely be interested in trying that. I liked it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so in addition, there is like a more modern way of condensing the syrup through reverse osmosis, if you remember chemistry, where pressure is applied to the mixture, forcing like the more watery sap portion through a membrane, and it leaves you with the syrup. So the syrup is then caramelized, filtered, and bottled, and it takes about 40 liters of this sap to produce one liter of syrup, which blew my mind. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not a great return on investment. <laughs> no, definitely not, but also explains why it's so expensive. Yeah, really earning its name, liquid gold. Mm -hmm, for sure. Okay, so producers will only collect about 1.5 liters of syrup from each tree, like each season, just not to deprive it of its, its nourishment. Uh, but a tree can actually produce up to 10 times that amount. It's just that in taking a lesser amount of sap, it preserves the tree for future years. And, and these trees can last like hundreds of years. So it's just maintaining that, that crop and harvesting. Awesome. Um, so maple syrup is graded based on its color, density, and flavor. Grade A has four different categories, which include golden, amber, dark, and very dark. And if it falls below a grade A, it's considered Canada processing grade. But regardless, all maple syrup in Canada must have a specific sugar content based on the brick scale, which I actually think you've mentioned in a previous episode. Maybe the wine yeah. episode. Is the sweetness, yeah, for sugar yeah. in a liquid. Yeah. That was my next sentence. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you. Um, no yeah, problem. so it has to fall between 66 and 68.9 degrees on that scale, or it can't be sold as maple syrup. And as I know you know this, Sarah, the maple sugar in maple syrup has been a point of contention in recent years when in 2018, the US FDA tried to include maple syrup and honey as added sugars on mm-hmm. nutrition labels. And I was wondering, what are your what are your thoughts? Should it be considered added sugar? I think yes. I hope that's... I, I wasn't prepared for a debate. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it's like, a ref, it's a refined form of sugar. Mm-hmm. And it is added to things as a sweetener. I personally don't think it's all that different than taking a plant like sugarcane and refining it into white refined sugar. For sure. And I do understand within... A pr- like a separate product that's not just pure maple syrup. Mm-hmm. But the issue that the maple syrup industry had with this was that um, if they put, this contains however many grams of added sugar, consumers might think that it actually was added sugar, not a natural source okay. of sugar, which I found interesting. That is interesting. I feel like it shouldn't be on the maple syrup, the physical maple syrup. Mm-hmm. But that was what they were saying. Oh, yeah. I don't think I like that. I think if you're if you're using maple syrup to sweeten packaged cookies, then it should be an added sugar. Mm-hmm. But if it's just a bottle of maple syrup, it's just maple syrup. You don't Is there a new... This is silly. <laughs> is there a nutrition <laughs> label on pure sugar that just says how many grams of sugar in... I think there is on the bag. Serving? There probably is. I I'm going to look. Is. I have some downstairs. Huh. And I like I have maple syrup from Costco. So it's a massive thing um, in the <laughs> fridge. And it does, it also has like the nutrition label and everything on it. Did you check if it was added? No, I did not. But I should. Fact check. Future editing. Becca here. I actually had three bottles of Canadian maple syrup at home. None of them mentioned added sugars, but the nutrition facts label did mention that anything over 15% of the daily value specified on the label is considered a lot. And one quarter cup of maple syrup contains 53% of that daily value of sugar. So the information on the bottle still allows for you to make an informed decision. I feel like my opinion here is just that the FDA likely didn't want to create a new sugar claim in legislature because... Mm it would need to be considered like unnecessary sugar instead of like added right. sugar. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, that's essentially what they're trying to say maple syrup is, but they did actually, the FDA retracted this whole idea and now they just require maple syrup brands and honey brands to actually add like an asterisk on the front of package mm-hmm. labels. And then you have to add a footnote to the nutrition facts label describing the number of grams of sugar in one serving and that that contributes to the daily value of added sugars in one's diet. So it's a little bit different. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a decent compromise. I agree. So they don't have to put it right on the front, but it does still need to be disclosed. Yeah, it's important. I mean, it is. it does contribute to your daily intake mm-hmm. of added sugar. So I think that's, that's a reasonable compromise. I agree. <laughs> Okay, so as I was saying earlier, Canada is the main producer of maple syrup globally, and there are over 8,600 maple syrup businesses in Canada. In 2016 alone, more than 45 million kilograms of maple syrup were exported, which is worth about $381 million. Nice. So that was crazy. 
So we typically produce less than that in a year, but we'll often dip into previous Canadian reserve supplies just to kind of like keep up with the demand. Yes, we do. (laughs) That's foreshadowing. Perfect. And the U.S. actually buys 65% of the total exported product. Then it goes Germany, Japan, and the U.K., which I thought was fascinating. That is. Then those will, that'll come back later too. Does it? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Slightly, slightly, (laughs) but you'll see. And then I just wanted to wrap up this intro with like something a little bit actionable and not actionable, but just something we can do. Anyways, I'm going to just name a couple maple start brands that are both owned and operated by indigenous people in Canada. So I'm just going to mention two companies that I I stumbled across in my research. So one is Wabanaki, situated on the Tobique First Nations in New Brunswick, which is 100% Indigenous female-owned, which I thought was kind of cool. Cool. And they have a list of recipes on their website that look absolutely incredible. All of them include maple syrup, so hop on there. (laughs) And we actually ship for free within Canada on purchases over $100. Let me tell you, it is easy to spend $100 on maple syrup. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Especially around the holidays, you can get your friends maple syrup, your parents. It's a great gift. And it doesn't really perish. No, it doesn't. So you can buy a lifetime supply of maple syrup and just, you know, chip away at it. But once you do open it, keep it in your fridge. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Because it does like stay fresher longer. Yes, for sure. (laughs) Avoid getting moisture on the top. Yeah. Keep your tongue off of there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on. So the second company is Gijagat Maple Products, which is a First Nations company, and they ship across the entire North America, which is really cool. They have a, like a lot of fun stuff on their website, including like trivia about the history of maple syrup, and they also have a blog that can keep you up to date on all things related to syrup. But I figured it was great to give a shout out to these these few brands and we can include their their links in our, our show notes. Yes, definitely. Thank you for doing that. That was a wonderful intro. Thank you. And a great take-home message. And now I'm going to tell you about the great Canadian maple syrup heist. Oh my goodness. And I am so excited. Okay, so this is one of the largest agricultural crimes ever committed. And it's also the most lucrative Canadian heist of all time. As per usual, all of our sources will be linked on our website, but I wanted to give a special shout out to an episode of Dirty Money on Netflix called The Maple Syrup Heist and an article in Vanity Fair called Inside Quebec's Great Multi-Million Dollar Maple Syrup Heist by Rich Cohen, who is a phenomenal writer. And I'm going to start off by reading this teaser quote that I think you, especially Becca, will appreciate. All right. When he unscrewed the cap, he discovered it empty. At first, it seemed like this might have been a glitch, a mistake. But soon more punk barrels were found, many more. Even barrels that seemed full had been emptied of syrup and filled with water, a sure sign of thieves who had covered their tracks. My God, they could be in Thunder Bay by now. (laughs) Which is a nice little Canada joke. Uh, And I think Rich Cohen is American, so it seems like he did his research. But basically, Thunder Bay is just way the heck out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, he probably looked at a map (laughs) and he's like, what would be funny? He's like, this would be funny. (laughs) Thunder Bay is not near anything. (laughs) (laughs) That does get me excited for the story, though, because I don't know anything about it. But also, I'm wondering, that maple water that you tried, maybe it Mm -hmm. came from these barrels. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Hey, I hope not, because the water... 
is from a creek, and I'm sure they didn't (laughs) filter it properly. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't know all the facts. Okay, I'm going to set the scene for you. It's 2012. We're in a small town northeast of Montreal, located on the Becancourt River, in a gigantic warehouse that houses Canada's Global Strategic Reserve of Maple Syrup. The warehouse is filled with floor-to-ceiling stacks of these 620-pound blue-white barrels. Why are they 620 pounds? Because they're filled with the greatest liquid known to mankind, maple syrup. <laughs> That's accurate. <laughs> Confirmed. Fact. <laughs> At least most of them are. Michael Govro, a warehouse employee, is doing his typical inventory rounds, which, spoiler alert, happens once a year. Oh. So... Just once a year inventory in Canada's, in the world's only maple syrup reserve. Wow. And he begins to climb up a stack of barrels and he realizes that it doesn't feel as sturdy as it normally does. And upon further inspection, he realizes that one of the barrels is empty. No big deal, he thinks. Maybe it's just a mistake. But as he continues to investigate, there are many more empty barrels and even more that seem full but have actually been filled up with water. And this is because over the course of many months between 2011 and 2012, a group of thieves siphoned off over 540,000 gallons of maple syrup worth over $18 million and sold it to the black market. The black market. It's underground. It's illegal. What? We'll get into it. And if you're having a hard time visualizing what... 540,000 gallons is one gallon is just under four liters, 3.8 liters. Mm -hmm. And so that works out to over 2 million liters of maple syrup. 200 million. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Lots. So you might be wondering, how does one steal that much maple syrup? It's so sticky. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do with it? And most importantly, is it even worth the trouble? A barrel of maple syrup is more valuable than a barrel of petroleum. Grade A Canadian maple syrup trades at about $32 per gallon, which adds up to $1,800 Canadian dollars per barrel, which is approximately 13 times the price of crude oil. Wow. Isn't that crazy? I did not know that. That's, that is wild. It's literally liquid gold. It truly is. And so this is a highly valuable product that also just so happens to be closely tied to Canadian identity. Canada actually, as Becca told us, produces 71% of the world's supply of maple syrup. And Quebec accounts for 90% of the Canadian production. So that's a lot of syrup. And I know this feels kind of wholesome and cute because everyone loves syrup. Everyone loves pancakes. But this is a huge economic force and it employs over 11,000 producers in Quebec alone. And as we learned in the avocado episode, when things are valuable, there's room for scandal, fraud, exploitation, etc. All the things. All of the things. So before getting into the details of the crime, I need to set the stage with some background information about the growing unrest amongst maple syrup producers in Quebec that is driven by current maple syrup regulations. Maple syrup is an agricultural product. So it can be subjected to farming and economic policies. This isn't necessarily anything new. Governments all around the world might choose to control the price of certain commodities. And the goal is actually to stabilize the market and protect producers. So instead of leaving producers vulnerable to things like 
large variances in season-to-season yields. They regulate the production and the sale of maple syrup so that the yearly income of producers is able to stay relatively the same. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. I'm going to give you like the pros and the cons, basically. Okay, perfect. So so I'm just going to set the stage and tell you what the theory is, and then we'll be like, okay, what's the reality? It also functions to keep setting the market price and driving the cost of maple syrup higher, which in theory also very much benefits the producers. Mm-hmm. However, there are many maple syrup producers in Quebec called the Maple Rebels. <laughs> so <laughs> cute. cute is that? I oh know. Oh my goodness. But they're angry. They're very angry. <laughs> and they resent this control and would prefer a free market. And they very much feel that they're being controlled by a cartel. Okay. I just need to pause for a second because Mm -hmm. do you think like just one of these maple rebels one day woke up and was like, we should be called the maple rebels. (laughs) It is just the cutest, sweetest name. (laughs) No, I feel like they're probably like, the media is calling us the maple rebel. Like they probably don't love it. They're like, it's not helping our cause that we sound so dang cute. (laughs) (laughs) We're serious here. Okay. So this cartel is actually called FPAC, or the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, which is a government-sanctioned private organization that regulates the production and sale of Quebec's maple syrup. So it's government-approved, essentially, but it is a private federation, private organization. Okay. FPAC was formed in 1966 to represent and advocate for maple syrup producers. At the time, most maple syrup producers were dairy farmers who just tapped trees in the spring as a bit of a side hustle, and it was really challenging, if not impossible, to make a decent living as just a maple syrup producer. The producers in FPAC all abide by a collective marketing agreement in which they establish policies negotiate their selling strategy, enforce production quotas, set up criteria for quality insurance, and sponsor promotional activities. And through this control, many people are actually able to make a full-time living from maple syrup production now. Okay. That makes sense. So that's a huge, huge benefit for a lot of people. Right. Okay. So let's talk about how the Federation came to be. It had to be put to a referendum and get at least 66% of the producers to vote in its favor, which did finally happen in 1990. So there was like an organization before it became a formal federation. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Okay, so throughout the 1990s, maple syrup output was continuing to grow rapidly, largely thanks to organizing as a federation in 1990. And by the year 2000, the industry was actually producing between 1.3 and 2 million gallons of maple syrup each year, which is quite a bit. Sounds like a lot. How big is a Olympic-sized swimming pool? I wonder. (laughs) You can do some quick math. I'm trying to envision what... (laughs) I'm trying to envision like how many swimming pools this is, but that is probably even hard to envision. Continue I think on. we should fact check. We should fact check how many swimming pools were stolen. Yes. With the 540,000 gallons. Because yes. that would be an interesting visual. I'm interested in. Yes. Future editing Sarah here. Okay. So an Olympic-sized swimming pool holds 660,000 gallons. And the thieves stole 540,000 gallons of maple syrup. So these guys stole 82% of an Olympic swimming pool's worth of of maple syrup. Okay, so around the year 2000, 
things were getting better and incomes were higher, but producers were still vulnerable to major fluctuations in income. So if it was a great year and the maple trees were just pumping out the sap, there would be a a surplus of syrup and the market price would be really low and the buyers would stockpile as much as possible. Right. And then if the next year had a poor yield, the buyers would just use the extra maple syrup that they'd bought the previous year and the producers would suffer and not make very much money. Okay. Okay. So things really changed in 2001. Quebec had a banger year for syrup, which with over 8.2 million gallons produced. And because the supply was so great, prices plummet. Mm. People were fed up. This prompted a change in the Federation to take on more of a marketing and business role that could negotiate better prices with the buyers. And to do this, they organized formally, which allowed them to dictate the entire market. Okay, so quick question. Uh, Is the Federation and the, was it the FPAQ, is that the same thing? Yeah, Federation and FPAC are are the same thing. I keep using them interchangeably. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So the Federation at this time, and due to this problem where they were having like huge fluctuations in income year to year, the Federation also began to store surplus production. So when those low-yield years came around, they would have all this extra syrup available to pump into the market and keep prices from falling. Right. So when there was extra syrup, producers would be forced to hand over their stock, including the surplus. And initially, individual producers were free to make as much syrup as they wanted and hand it over. So like, here's, you know, I had a great year. Here's tons of syrup. But in 2003, there was another banger year, and they had so much syrup that had to be stored that the Federation began imposing quotas on producers. Huh. Yeah. Okay. A quota basically tells the maple syrup producers how much syrup they can produce and actually bring to market each year. And if producers do have a really fantastic year and they try to sell more than their quota, they do risk punishment. That's so bizarre. I feel like a quota is normally something you're like striving to hit. But in this this Mm -hmm. situation, it's something that you don't want to hit necessarily. Well, you want to hit your quota, but if you have like double your quota this year and you can't profit off of it. Mm -hmm. That's super unfortunate. So, yeah. sorry, so can you just store it on your own or is that considered part of your quota? That is a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I could fact check. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find the answer, though. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of questions I had that came up myself while I was researching, and I, there was a lot I couldn't find. For sure. So if a fact check is inserted, it means we found the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, move on. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, so each year, any output that doesn't get sold has to stay in the strategic reserve, and producers don't receive compensation for it until it sells. Okay. And because, as we talked about earlier, maple syrup doesn't super spoil, it can be stored for a really long time, so producers can be waiting years for compensation. Just like how you were talking about Indigenous people used to preserve venison with maple syrup. Mm Mm-hmm. It's very similar. So it's kind of counterintuitive because we know sugar is a great source of energy. But where there's a lot of sugar in a solution, the sugar actually draws water in from its environment. Right. So basically any microbe or bacteria that tries to come into your barrel of maple syrup, the sugar will draw the water out of it and it won't have water available to support its own life and it will dehydrate and die. (laughs) Yeah. So if you've ever had maple syrup or jam go moldy on the top, which can happen, that's likely because there was some moisture 
you were probably licking the surface of your jam <laughs> and you got some moisture and bacteria there. Um, and you can actually, even though it seems kind of gross, you can actually scrape off the top of a moldy jam and still enjoy the rest of it. I've definitely done that. I do it with cheese too. Oh yeah. A hundred percent with cheese. There was a restaurant, this is a total sidebar, but there was a restaurant that got major flack for scraping. It was like a jam restaurant. That was their major thing in LA. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this? No. It was maybe last year, but they had like buckets of jam and they would just get employees to like scrape mold off the top. And it was like, the pictures were pretty alarming. (laughs) So I was thinking of them when I read this and I was like, I wonder if they actually were breaking codes or if for certain products, it's okay to do that. I think it's probably okay for certain products. I figure if I would do it, then it's probably fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. When it's a restaurant and like, I'll send you the pics. They were pretty alarming. Okay. (laughs) It was not just like a little bit of mold. You might change my mind. (laughs) Okay. So maple syrup is sold from the reserve when current production doesn't meet the demand. And this is how the market is controlled. Producers will still make money based off the contributions that they made in other years. And in 2009, there were actually four back-to-back years of terrible production and the strategic reserve almost ran dry. But since then, production has bounced back and the reserve is overflowing. Phew. Yeah. So don't fear. Okay. So does everyone who makes maple syrup in Quebec, do they have to join this this federation that you talked about? Sorry, this question came up. Or can, can you just kind of like do your own thing? Yeah. So that's actually a really great question. And that's the source of most of the frustration. All Quebecois maple syrup producers have to sell their stock directly to FPAC. Hmm. And this is backed by Canadian civil courts. So the Federation has the monopoly for selling syrup and for exporting it out of Quebec. Producers are able to sell cans of less than five liters to visitors on their personal sugar shack. Mm-hmm. So that is allowed. That could be a, a another side stream. And according to FPAC, those sales only represent 10% of maple syrup sales in Quebec, which isn't that surprising to me considering sugar shacks are usually out in the middle of nowhere. For sure. And I, I actually know exactly what those little cans look like. I feel like that's a... Yeah, the classic can. Yeah. So cute. They make candles in them too. Do they? Those maple rebels. (laughs) No, roots. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So producers are also able to sell their maple syrup to local supermarkets, but they have to pay a 12 cents per pound commission to the Federation, which I read works out to about 12% of the profits to the Federation. And I've read that this is not necessarily ideal because FPAC pays the producers in installments and some are left waiting years for full payment. Okay. So... When you consider all these different factors and the amount of control that FPAC has, it's not surprising that there's a growing black market of underground syrup suppliers fueled by maple syrup producers that are super frustrated with the with the Federation and the limitations on their income. Okay. My question is, who mm-hmm. buys black market maple syrup? I'm going to get to them. Yeah. I'm going to, so it's, there are like black market dealers. Mm. It's a big thing. They're called barrel rollers. So naive. (laughs) And there are like well-known barrel rollers. I don't even know what a barrel roller is. (laughs) It's someone who knows how to sell to the black market. Fascinating. Is there like a location you can go to this like black market or is all done virtually? Absolutely not. No, no, virtually. (laughs) No, this is done under the cover of night. 
Like, like in trucks person? loading in person mm. under the cover of night, barrels being loaded onto trucks and like transported across the New Brunswick border before dawn. Okay. I was envisioning like an Amazon for the black market. I mean, maybe. This is 2012. <laughs> so technology has come a long way since 2012. <laughs> okay. So there are clearly good reasons that the Federation exists. The Federation provides a certain level of security. It actually does have a lot of supporters and producers who benefit from the system each and every year. And many people are able to make a decent living as a maple syrup producer, which was super rare and maybe even impossible before the Federation existed. But I want to take you into the mind of a maple syrup rebel for a moment. I would love to go there. Because <laughs> the anger and frustration is is very real. Angèle Grenier has been producing maple syrup with her husband on their farm located south of Quebec City for decades. Each winter and spring, she taps her trees and harvests sap to produce maple syrup, but she is legally required to hand all of it, everything she produces, over to the Federation. This is super frustrating for Angèle, and so she and her husband load up their truck with maple syrup under the cover of night and transport it across the border to New Brunswick before dawn for 12 years. Like all of it. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if they did. I think they probably did it in like small batches, harvest a bit, sneak it over the border, but that's just my guess. Okay. This is, of course, illegal because of the FPAC rules, but they were fighting for their right to sell their syrup for a price of their choosing. She was sort of caught. She was visited by Federation staff, and they hit her with a $500,000 fine, which is massive, and she refused to pay. So FPAC took her to court, and Angel was ordered to hand over all of her product, which seems a little cruel to me. In 2013... FPAC came to her farm and seized her syrup, and a judge ruled that FPAC could legally enter her property at any time to inspect her products, which seems very invasive. Yeah. So are they seizing like all her like syrup and future syrup? Or is it just mm-hmm. like at the time she had to hand over everything she had produced? At the time seizing her syrup. But if the judge has ruled that FPAC can enter her property at any time to inspect air quotes, her products, who's to say they wouldn't seize it at future dates too. Yeah, that seems so unfair because I feel like just sneaking maple syrup over a border does seem like quite an innocent crime if she's just looking to sell it at the price she wants to sell it at and make a living wage. I don't know. Is this going to get more scandalous? Am I... Yeah, no, it's going to get more scandalous 100%. But like the reason that the maple syrup industry is the way it is and is worth so much and people are making their living is because of FPAC. That's true. So it's like if one person starts to undermine the system, I I, I feel like there just is no compromise right now. Like there's no small sellers and there's its own full control, full federation control. Right. Whereas you almost need some sort of hybrid market but then if the small sellers are all selling it for a cheaper price like the only reason maple syrup is as expensive as it is is really because of the federation right whatever i'll pay for it well and we'll pay for it and we do pay for it (laughs) because it's so delicious but if it was cheaper people wouldn't be able to make a living for sure no that makes sense it's really complicated and like i feel for the maple rebels but i also saw reports like some I mean, I think in the documentary, they said like 80% of 
producers support the Federation. Okay. Okay, that's all I needed to know. Okay, Angel tried to fight the Federation by taking them to the Quebec Court of Appeal, but they denied her appeal, and so she took her case to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they refused to hear her appeal. Mm. And at this point in 2014, Angel and her husband had spent $150,000 in legal fees and had $300,000 in remaining fines from FPAC. And the last update I could find, she was thinking about leaving the maple syrup industry completely. That's unfortunate. Yeah. So essentially, if you've been in business for decades and then the Federation is formed and completely forces you to change how you and your family have been conducting business, you just don't have a choice, basically. Like, this is how it is now. You don't get to sell it at the price you want to. Right. So essentially, if you've been in business for decades and then the Federation is formed and completely forces you to change how you and your family have been conducting business, you just don't have a choice. And in fact, if you try to control your product and you do choose to sell it on the black market, the Federation will get you because that's illegal. And there are reports of producers sneaking barrels of syrup out of their own sugar shacks and selling them to the black market and getting caught. Um, And the fines are steep in the hundreds of thousands. And the Federation responds, allegedly, by placing guards outside of problematic sugar shacks, which is crazy, and even monitoring personal information like production logs and bank accounts. Okay, this is a little bit extreme. I think that a hybrid, like you were saying before, I think a hybrid is necessary here. Because what if you just don't want the help of... The, what is it? The FA, whatever. FPAC. <laughs> FPAC. What if you don't want their their help, their resources? I know. You still have to. But then you sell it for a cheaper price and everybody buys your syrup and you undercut the market. And I think, I think that's it. Like there's a yes. reason people couldn't make a living producing maple syrup before. But to infringe on the privacy. Oh, I know. Of companies and like mm-hmm. monitor people. like. Yeah, to stand outside of these problematic sugar shacks, as you said. That seems excessive. Yeah, I know. It really does. And uh, when rebels try to fight it, they've been literally run dry in the court system and sometimes even forced to sell huge areas of sugar bush that have been in their families for decades and decades. Rosie's objecting to that downstairs. (laughs) (laughs) She's a maple rebel. She is upset. (laughs) So just to quickly summarize here, the pros of the Federation include an enforced quota system and strategic reserve that help ensure financial stability for the producers. And the work of the Federation has created a massive boom in maple syrup production from Quebec. And also the Federation enforces quality criteria that has given Quebec a worldwide reputation for the best maple syrup, grade A Canadian maple syrup. Never burnt, never too watery, always properly graded, and never cloudy or crystallized. But most producers lose all individual control of their product, and that is really important to many of them. You ready for the scandal? I am so ready for this. Okay, so let's go back to that warehouse that stores the global strategic reserve of maple syrup. All right. There are actually four of these warehouses, but we're just going to focus in on the one main warehouse. And this is the only global strategic reserve of maple syrup in the world. So it's August 24th, 2012. A bunch of completely empty barrels have been found. 
remember Michael Govro from the start of the story. Mm-hmm. And even more have been found that have been filled with water. Almost 10,000 barrels have been stolen. Okay. 10,620 pound barrels have been stolen. What? And it's immediately clear that this has been going on for a very long time. Apparently, the barrels at the world's only strategic syrup reserve are only inspected once a year. So it was easy to miss. I think that's like the, the fact that kind of blows my mind the most. That and the fact that there was almost no security at the global reserve. I find it so strange that they have all of this security on the individual producers and are so strict on what's coming into the warehouses, yet they don't they like don't really seem to value what's actually in the warehouses. It's more, I don't know, it's kind of a weird system. It is ludicrous. And especially considering the cost of each barrel, like this is a huge economic force mm-hmm. for Quebec. And I, I like my best theory is that they just thought, how would anyone steal it? And why would they steal maple syrup? And what would like, how, what would they possibly do with it? Right. I don't know. But there were no cameras. I mean, some people were saying there was just like a lock on a door. There was, n- there were no cameras. There were no cameras. Okay. Sorry. So how many, no alarm how many, system. How many barrels were in there? Did you say how much was stored in there at the time? Uh, so 10,000 barrels is about 10% of the reserve at the time. So, so 10,000 barrels were how many were 10. in there times 10 um, times one. Okay. That's $180 million. Yeah. Yep. I didn't, yep. I didn't do that in my head. I had my calculator. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, it's huge. Okay, so right away, it was pretty clear that this must have been an inside job. Someone with regular and non-suspicious access to the reserve must have been involved. So over 250 investigators flooded the scene. This is one of the largest investigations in Canadian history and determined that nearly 10,000 barrels had been stolen, which is approximately 10% of the entire reserve. They interviewed over 200 witnesses and they started to build their case. And almost immediately, Avic Caron stood out. He was the owner of the warehouse. And he also (laughs) had previously been involved in a fraudulent operation, allegedly to do with stolen cars. And he's rumored to have ties to the mafia. So a bit of a red flag, if you ask me. Yeah. (laughs) To own the warehouse that houses this reserve. Millions and millions of dollars worth of syrup. Mm Mm-hmm. And another key suspect right away was Richard Valier, who was one of the best known barrel rollers in all of Quebec, which is a term for someone who buys and sells syrup directly from producers and bypasses the Federation and sells to the black market. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Avik had access to the warehouse and Richard was an expert in selling maple syrup to the black market. But how the heck were two guys emptying 10,000 massive 600-pound barrels of syrup, and transporting a super sticky liquid somewhere else. I don't know, but I'm so fascinated by this. I have zero guesses. Okay. Well, I'll steamroll ahead. (laughs) The lead investigator on the case, Luc Briand, noticed that the warehouse usually used a special forklift that was designed so that it didn't mark up the exterior of the barrels when it was moving them. But the investigators noticed that all the barrels that had been emptied or filled with water had forklift marks all over them, Mm. which is kind of hilarious. Just like such slot. It's a sloppy crime. Sloppy job. Yeah. 
And they got away with it for so long because security was so minimal and they do inventory once a year. So this all happened within that one year period Mm -hmm. of time. 2011 to 2012, Mm -hmm. over the course of a couple months. Impressive. Interesting, eh? Okay, so the lead investigator went to local forklift rental places and checked out all the recent names of people who had rented forklifts. And sure enough, there was the name of a known maple syrup transporter, Sebastien Utra. I had to practice that one. (laughs) So now we have Avik, the guy with the warehouse. We have Sebastian, the guy with the truck. And we have Richard, the guy with the sales network. But still, how do they do it for so long without getting caught? These are 600-pound barrels. I feel like I've said that so many times. But they're really big. And syrup is really sticky. So what they did, they had to introduce fake barrels. So they got the exact same shade of blue-white paint and the exact same Federation barrel stickers, which were used to tag and identify the maple syrup. Mm -hmm. The real barrels were removed from the warehouse and replaced with a fake decoy barrel temporarily. And then the syrup was transported to another warehouse where the syrup was siphoned into another set of barrels. And then the original barrels from the warehouse were taken to a creek and filled with water so that they were heavy. And then these were taken back to the strategic reserve and they replaced the temporary replica barrels. It's quite an operation. (laughs) Then Richard Valier would sell the siphoned syrup to U.S., Germany, and Japan, and also to a man named Etienne Saint-Pierre, who would sell it throughout New Brunswick. That's so funny that U.S., Germany, Japan are the top three exporters. I know. I guess they have a demand for syrup. Yeah, I wonder why. But this plan was pretty successful, and it went on for months. But after a while, the crew got lazy. Even lazier. Well, I mean, it was a pretty, like, complex operation. So I wouldn't say they were lazy, but it just felt sloppy from the start to me. And, like, the moment that somebody realized that they were filled with water, these barrels, it seems Mm -hmm. like they got caught, it feels like. They got caught real quick. It was, like, the three most obvious guys, it feels like. (laughs) The warehouse owner, the well-known barrel roller, and the guy who's known to drive around maple syrup. (laughs) Yep. And they were known to meet at a a nearby diner, the three of them. (laughs) Just genius. But the plan was pretty successful. It went on for months, and then they got lazy, and they started to just siphon the barrels right in the warehouse, so cutting out all of those steps and just leaving empty barrels, which would, of course, ultimately be their demise. So once the police had their suspects, the heist crumbled pretty quickly, and they were brought to trial. Sebastian maintained that he didn't know the syrup was stolen and he was just a middleman. He thought he was transporting legal syrup. And he ended up testifying against Avik and Richard, who were convicted for theft, fraud, and trafficking stolen goods. So Avik Caron got six years in jail and a $1.7 million fine. Richard, Avik Caron was the warehouse owner. Mm-hmm. Richard Valier, who was the well-known barrel roller, got eight years in jail and a $10 million fine. Crazy huge fine. Mm-hmm. And Etienne Saint-Pierre, who was buying the stolen syrup and selling it in New Brunswick, got two years home imprisonment. And <laughs> I put a dollar and three cents fine, but I'm pretty sure that's a $1 million, <laughs> $1.03 million fine for purchasing stolen maple syrup. So did they have to 
give any of the money back from the syrup that was stolen? Or is that what this, these fines were for? That's a really interesting question. And I don't know the exact answer, but this next point will be interesting to you um, and kind of touches on that. Okay, so nine years since this has happened, this sticky situation is not quite over. The Supreme Court of Canada granted leave for appeal, which I had to Google. It basically means that the appeal can continue. There's a, an appeal happening that can keep going Okay. to the case. This happened this past September. And the Supreme Court of Canada will deal with the issue of whether the court can seize only the profit. I know this was like really hard for me to do. <laughs> and I was like, I need, I need Becca's crim degree. You just, said, sense? you just said weether. Oh, <laughs> Jeff's going to love that. Whether. Uh, okay. Let me do it again. The Supreme Court of Canada will deal I'm with the sorry. issue of whether. <laughs> it's so funny. Because I started laughing. You thought it was something completely different. I'm so sorry. That was funny. <laughs> <laughs> I actually say that a lot. And Jeff always makes me. He's like, it's not weather. It's weather. But it's like, I always get weather and either confused. Oh my goodness. I know. I know. It's embarrassing. Fascinating. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Supreme Court of Canada will deal with the issue of whether the court can seize only the profit gained from traffic and stolen goods when the charges are laid. So based on this appeal that's happening, I'm going to guess those fines are greater than the profit gained. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, it does. So the the fines that were imposed on the three individuals are greater than what they would have made in the maple syrup on the black market. Yeah. And Richard Valliere is in the process of appealing it with the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, dealing with the issue of, we, yeah, to, to basically decide if the court can seize more than what was actually made as profit. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes, I think that makes sense. Like it makes Honestly, sense. Honestly, it was from a lot of legal jargon. This was from like a, a real legal source. And I was like, oh, if only I had a crim degree. <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. You would understand two more words. <laughs> um, and that's basically it. That's the story of the great Canadian maple syrup heist. And wow. the Federation still exists. This is still all current. And some people are still unhappy with it. And some people are happy with it. Fascinating. Really, really, really interesting story. I feel like I'm going to go watch that. Um, that Netflix show now. Yeah, it's awesome. And you can see everyone I'm talking about, like all the people I just mentioned here, you'll be able to put a face to the name. All the Frenchmen. Yep. And even Angel, the one who was getting totally screwed by the Federation. Yeah, no, that was an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. It was really fun to research. And it's just so Canadian. Yeah, it is. Which <laughs> makes it extra nice. Yes, definitely. Okay. So I do have a quick teaser question for you for next, not next week, but two weeks from now's episode. Okay. What is your favorite way to eat fish? Uh, maybe a fish taco. It's a good way. Perhaps a, I actually love a fish cake, like a crab cake. How about fish I sticks? I never make them. Fish sticks? Not my favorite, but I would totally eat some fish sticks. <laughs> what about you? But before you said fish taco, I was definitely going more towards sushi, but oh, nice. fish tacos are amazing as well. Mm -hmm. Sushi is a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I guess we have a fishy episode next time. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. 
Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at Dietetics After Dark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.